The first five weeks of this spring semester, we are going to be walking through a series titled, Am I Really a Christian? This is a question of utmost importance. If somebody were to ask you, are you coming over this evening? It would be a question of inconsequential importance, right? You would need to know so that you can prepare adequately. You need to have enough food for your guests. Uh, you need to make sure that your, ha- your house is halfway presentable, etc. If, if you were to ask yourself, am I really certain that I should be going to NC State or UNC or Duke or anything like that? It would be a question of minimal importance. It would cause you to examine why you're at state or the university that you are at, whether you should possibly go to another university next semester. And uh, these are seemingly important things, yet in the grand scheme of things, in light of eternity, they are pretty insignificant, if you're honest. But when you ask yourself the question, am I really a Christian, we are talking about a question of vast importance. This question will cause you to ponder as to whether you truly have peace with God. Whether you as an individual have peace with God. It will make you consider whether Jesus Christ is truly your brother, friend, Lord, Savior, prophet, and priest, king, as opposed to your enemy who will one day destroy you. It will make you really wonder as to whether your sins have been completely forgiven or whether you're still going to be judged in accordance with your sins. Whether you truly have been counted righteous in the eyes of God. Whether you will be able to stand before God on judgment day. You will begin reflecting on whether you will spend eternity in heavenly bliss or in agonizing torment with Satan and his demons. And in the grand scheme of things, these make every other question you could ever ask seem dull and vain, right? A mere trifle to even think about. So this question needs to be asked, and more importantly, it needs to be answered. Why do it in College Connections class, though? Why do it in front of a group of people that consistently attend church every Sunday? People that call themselves Christians, come in and listen to preaching and teaching often. Why do it here? Why not on a college campus around a bunch of people that do not do anything for Christ's sake? They don't, do, they don't go to church, they don't do anything like that, but they profess Christ. Why here? And there are a few reasons that led me to do this series this semester. When you survey the New Testament, it is very clear that there will be people that profess to be Christians, but in all reality, they are not. So Matthew 3, 7 through 9 says this, But when he, this is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious people of the day, Coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And listen to this. And do not presume, do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So he said this to the religious people of the day the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they are presuming because they have a rich spiritual history and lineage that they don't need to listen to John the Baptist. They are okay. They are good to go. No reason to be repenting of sin and being baptized. They have Abraham as their father. 
However, they're mistaken. They think they are free from the wrath of God when in all reality they're under it. With that said, is it possible that some people that attend this College Connections class could be presuming that they are Christians, that they are okay with God because of their spiritual history or lineage? This is at least a possibility that there are some people that attend this class that are in that predicament. Also, Matthew 7, 21-27. This is Jesus at the end of His famous sermon. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who calls me God will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... On that day, judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, this is the Lord Jesus Christ, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Jesus is blatantly saying that people are going to acknowledge Him as God overall, but will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So they say they know Him, but Jesus says that He does not know them, and then goes on to condemn them. Could there be people in here that think that they know Jesus, profess Him to be God, but that will one day hear Jesus tell them that He never knew them? That is at least a possibility as you read the New Testament. And there's many other scriptures. Two, the second reason for this series is because when one surveys the New Testament, it is clear that self-deception is a very awful reality in the life of an individual. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that we are Christians when in all reality we are not. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Think about this. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a bunch of professed Christians. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail the test. So Paul wants the Corinthians to examine themselves to see if they are in the faith. To see if Jesus Christ is truly in them. If they have spiritual life in Christ. James 1.22 says this, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James wants his hearers to know that if they merely hear the word of God, but do not obey it, they are deceived about their spiritual condition. They're deceived about their spiritual condition as to the authenticity of their religion. They're deceived. James 1.26, if anyone thinks he is religious, and we're talking about Christianity, okay? It's not just all these other religions. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. James wants them to know that if they think that they are religious, but actually have a religion that doesn't lead them to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, their religion is absolutely worthless. It is simply of no value. It will not do anything for them. It is not going to benefit them at all. 
Is there a possibility that some people that frequently attend this class think that they are in the Christian faith, but aren't really? Or is there a possibility that there are some people in here that have deceived themselves into thinking that they are okay spiritually because they listen to the Word, but however, they don't really do what the Word says? Or that some people in here that profess to be a part of the Christian religion, but in all reality, they have a worthless religion that is of no value at all. That's at least a possibility. That's the second reason. The third reason is this. When you survey the New Testament, it is clear that one must repent and believe, have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. Yet the Bible talks about different types of repentance and different types of faith. 2 Corinthians 7.10 regarding repentance. For godly grief, godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So there is a godly sorrow that leads to a repentance that leads to salvation. And there's a worldly sorrow that leads to repentance that leads to death. For example, we have Peter. After he denied Jesus, he wept bitterly over the sin that he committed against his Lord. And after weeping bitterly over that sin, repenting of it, the Lord restored him. That's godly sorrow that led to repentance that led to salvation. Judas, however, after betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, realized he sinned. It says that he changed his mind. He repented. He sought to return the 30 pieces of silver and then went and hung himself. Judas had a worldly sorrow that led to repentance that leads to death. Not a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and leads to salvation. So there's two types of repentance. Regarding faith, James 2, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? That kind of faith, the faith without works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, without works, if it does not have works, is dead. So there is a dead faith that does not have works, and there is a living faith that has all kind of works. With these truths in mind, could it be possible that people in here have experienced a worldly sorrow that led to a false repentance that leads to death? Or that there are people in here that have a dead faith that evidences itself week in and week out because we don't do anything for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's at least a possibility. As you read the New Testament, it's all over the place. As you read the Old Testament, the people of Israel, it's all over the place. It's at least a possibility. So these are the reasons we're doing this five-week series. The Bible reveals that there are people that will think that they have peace with God, but really do not. And that is incredibly frightening. So this type of series will shed light on all of this so that we can examine ourselves. That's the point. I'm examining myself. You're examining yourselves. And that's what we're seeking to do here. This is going to open up the inner recesses of our hearts so that we can see where we are at. What is our spiritual condition? Have we deceived ourselves? Have we not deceived ourselves? And we're going to find a ton of joy when we realize that, that we truly have a living faith in Christ. Now... There are some common misconceptions about being a Christian. Would you agree with that? Like when you ask people, how do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you have peace with God? How, you know, what led you to become a Christian? How long have you been a Christian? There's a lot of misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. So some of these, and y'all have probably heard a lot of these. You ask some people, and some people say, I have always been a Christian. Or 
I was born a Christian. Has anybody ever heard somebody say that I was born a Christian? Okay, most people. <coughs> For the Presbyterians, Methodists, Catholics, etc., they will often say that they were confirmed in the church. So, are you a Christian? Yes, I was confirmed. And what that means is at a particular age, they affirmed Orthodox Christian doctrine and the church accepted them. That's confirmation. For the Baptists, they will identify the moment of baptism. So, are you saved? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're a Christian? I was baptized when I was seven. Okay. They'll identify baptism as what it means to become a Christian or when they became a Christian. Some people will say they prayed a specific prayer when they were in fourth grade. That was my case. Or maybe seventh grade, eighth grade. They said some type of prayer at the invitation moment of a service. They went down there. They repeated after the pastor, you know, repeat these words after me and you'll have eternal life. And then all of a sudden they lived the rest of their life thinking they were truly saved because they uttered some words that a pastor said a long time ago. That's what it takes to become a Christian. So some people identify that. Some will simply bank on how they grew up in the church or that they are members of a church. I've heard somebody tell me that they've been a member of a church since they were two years old. That's what they're banking on. That's what it means to be a Christian, be a member of a church. That is what they place their stock in. So, most of us have heard some of these responses to those types of questions. Now, some of these kinds of comments can be said out of ignorance. So some people make these statements, and it doesn't mean that they aren't saved. That's important to understand. It doesn't mean that they aren't saved. Some of them, it definitely means they aren't saved. Like if you're banking on works, you're not saved. They may just be ignorant of how to answer the question that's being asked. Because some people have never been asked that question. So all of a sudden you put them on the spot and they're trying to figure out how to answer that. I get that. Most times, however, these kinds of comments reveal that the person does not know what it means to be a Christian because they are not a Christian. With that said, let's look at the first three major teachings that we will need to know and understand in order to begin assessing whether we are truly Christians or not. These teachings will deal with the doctrine of regeneration, probably a foreign concept, we'll talk more about it, repentance, and faith. So let's begin with the doctrine of regeneration. You are not a Christian if you are not regenerated. Or, as you will see it throughout the Bible, born again. Right? With that said, regeneration or the doctrine of the new birth is incredibly important. So let's get a definition of it. Wayne Grudem defines it like this. I think this is helpful. Regeneration is the secret act of God in which He imparts new spiritual life to us. The secret act of God where He imparts new spiritual life to us. Now, the fact that we need God to give us new spiritual life ought to be clinging in your heads, telling you that there is something wrong with our current or natural spiritual condition, right? If we need new spiritual life, it's because the spiritual life we have naturally is not good. It's bad. Why must God regenerate us? Why must we be born again? Why do we need, the, why do we need this new life that is being talked about here? These questions need to be answered. So what is the biblical teaching regarding the natural man? Why do we need the new birth? What is the biblical teaching about us in our natural state? And as you look at the Bible, it's not good. It's not good at all. The Bible teaches that Adam and Eve were the first people that God ever created. Garden of Eden, you've heard that story. 
And God created Adam to be the natural head of the human race. By that, I mean that the rest of mankind came from Adam. So we are descendants of Adam. That's what it means to be a natural head, right? God also created Adam to be our federal head, or makes more sense if you call it representative head. And by that, I mean that Adam was created as the representative head of the entire human race. So when Adam was in the garden, he represented all of us in here. Everybody that has ever lived, apart from Christ, Adam represented. Okay? Now, as our representative, Adam disobeyed God and thus sinned against him. And when Adam sinned against God, it says that we all sinned against God in Adam. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Biblical proof of this is Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned and are under the sentence of death. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience, one man, Adam's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So because of Adam's disobedience in the garden, we were made sinners. He was our representative there. It also becomes apparent that we are guilty and under the condemnation of God because of Adam's sin. Romans 5.18 Therefore, as one trespass, one trespass, Adam's trespass, led to condemnation for all men. Condemnation. We are guilty. Also, along with the guilt and condemnation we get in Adam, it is clear from the Bible that we have inherited a sin nature from Adam. Y'all are like, man, Adam, you really messed this up. Right? And so, Kaylee made this awesome point. She was talking about like... Usually the response when you talk about all this stuff is like, man, I would have done much better than Adam. It's like, well, you just committed the sin that Adam committed. That's nothing but haughty pride saying I would do better than Adam. No, you wouldn't. You wouldn't do better than Adam. We would do the same exact thing. Also, so when we think about inherited sin nature, you're going to look at Psalm 51.5. This is what David says. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Brought forth. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. We're talking about a sin nature. That every aspect of our person, this is what this means. Every aspect of our person, our spirit, our mind, our affections, our desires, our will is corrupted by sin. There is no part of you as a person that is not corrupted by sin in your natural state. Okay? So Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead, spiritually dead. Following the course of the world. So we followed this wicked world system that's that's in opposition to God. Following the prince of the power there, we followed Satan. We were under his reign and being obedient to his causes. It says the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. So we, we were governed by our own sinful passions. We woke up every morning intensely dedicated to gratifying every simple desire that we have. Maybe not every one of them, but a lot of them. And then it says this, And we're by nature, by nature, children of wrath. That's what we were by nature. Romans seven eighteen. Listen to this. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Nothing good. 
Paul is saying that in my natural state, apart from the sovereign work of God, nothing good dwells in me. We don't think like that about the natural man, do we? Nothing good. Romans 3, 9 through 12. What then? Are we Jews any better off? So he's sitting there saying, are we Jews better off because of our lineage and our history and all this other stuff compared to the Gentiles who are absolute heathens? Are we any better off than them spiritually? Come on, Paul. Surely we are. Then Paul says, no, not at all. You got to love that. Paul's just so honest, right? No, not at all. You're not better than them. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the reign of sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No one's righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So all people are under sin. We're under the power of sin, the influence of sin, the reign of sin. We're not righteous. We do not understand the things of God. We do not seek God and we are not good. That's what the Bible's saying, right? This is our natural state. So we are guilty in Adam, stand condemned before God in Adam, and have inherited a sin nature that is in hostility towards God from Adam. That's the biblical teaching regarding man. And we could go on and on with the biblical precedence of all that I'm saying. It's all over the place. But the important thing to understand is this. In our natural state, we are spiritually dead and corrupted by sin. This is why we need to be regenerated. This is why we need to be born again. Our entire persons are so corrupted by sin that God must make us completely new creatures, completely new people. That's a humbling teaching, and it's the teaching of the Bible. Now, what's apparent is is that that kind of teaching doesn't arrive in a vacuum. It doesn't just pop up in the New Testament as though, oh, here's a new teaching, we need to be born again, we're spiritually dead, all this other stuff. This is what God was always working towards. This is what the New Covenant is all about. This is what the whole Old Testament was talking about. Deuteronomy 36. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, so this is why he's going to do this, you will love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul that you may live. So he promised to get rid of our bad heart so that we'll have a new heart that will love God. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And I, this is God speaking. Just listen to how many I wills in here. It's completely the act of God. We'll get to that later. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. So He's going to give us a new heart, a new spirit. He's going to place His Holy Spirit inside of us. And when He does this miraculous work, what we call regeneration, being born again, He's going to cause you to walk in obedience to His statutes. So if you're a Christian here and you've ever obeyed God, which if you're a Christian, you ought to be obeying God to some extent. Okay? 
progressively more. We'll talk about that next week. If you've ever obeyed God, it's because the Spirit of God caused you to obey God. You didn't do it your own. Every act of obedience that we do, we ought to just praise God. Lord, I wouldn't have done that 10 years ago. I was, I was dead in sin. But now, because of the Holy Spirit in me, you're causing me to be obedient. And praise God for that. So, this is what the Old Testament was talking about. This is what the New Covenant is all about. Okay, This is what Acts 2 is all about. The outpouring of the Spirit of God on the people of God. And this is what happens through the coming of Jesus. So, Let's look intently at what regeneration is. So we talked about why we need this, that it's been talked about. Now we're going to look at what is this doctrine? What does it mean? How can we know that this has happened to us? First, regeneration is the act of God. Okay? Regeneration is the act of God. Just as we contributed nothing to our physical birth, we also contribute nothing to our spiritual rebirth. Regeneration is the sovereign work of God. So just flip to John 1, 11 through 13. John 1, 11 through 13. There we see this. He, Jesus, came to His own, the Jewish people, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. Now listen. Who were born not of blood. So heritage and race are irrelevant to this new birth. Being a Jew or an individual born to a Christian family in the Bible Belt is irrelevant to regeneration. He also says, let's see, nor of the will of the flesh. So it is not a result of sexual desire. It has nothing to do with procreation in this sense. Then it says, nor of the will of man. So it's not a result of human decision, something a man musters up in his own intuition. That's not, that's not what happens in the new birth. Listen to this. Comma, but of God, born of God. So the new birth, regeneration, has everything to do with God. He is the one that brings about this new life. Second, God does the work of regeneration through the proclamation of the Word of God, specifically the Gospel, and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the proclamation of the Word of God and the ministry of the Spirit. James 1.18 says this, Of His, God, of His own will He brought us forth, that's new birth type terminology, by the Word of Truth. That's the gospel. By the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, how were you brought forth? By the word of truth, the proclamation of the word. 1 Peter 1 22 through 23. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Now, listen. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. 
And then a couple of verses later, what is that word? What are we talking about? What's being preached that's causing or bringing people forth? Well, it says, and this word is the good news that was preached. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So regeneration is linked with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we are sinful rebels... And that we can actually have peace with God, forgiveness of sins, and the righteousness of Christ given to us through faith in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So the proclamation of the Word is very important. Also, regeneration is often linked with the work of the Spirit of God, as you read the Bible. Titus 3, 4 through 5, you didn't memorize these verses. It says this, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't do anything. But according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Spirit. John 3, 5 through 6. This is the conversation he had with Nicodemus. You're all familiar with this. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you're born of the Spirit of God, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. That's what I'm saying. If you're not regenerated, you're not a Christian. If you're not regenerated, if you're not born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In light of this, it's accurate to say that at a particular moment in time, so you need to be thinking about this as you evaluate, as you examine yourself, at a particular moment in time, God allows us to hear, read, or ponder on the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that has never happened before. We hear it with different ears. We see Jesus with different eyes. And as we listen to the good news about all that Jesus Christ has done in His life, death, and resurrection, the Spirit of God causes us to be born again. He makes us new people. He gives us a new heart. He fills us with His Spirit. We go from spiritually dead to spiritually alive in Christ Jesus. And this is by the power of the Spirit of God through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the doctrine of regeneration. If this has never happened to you, you aren't a Christian. You must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. With that said, we need to figure out some ways we can know that this has happened to us, right? We need to figure out how and what this looks like. The first thing is this. It is important to understand and listen carefully that you do not always know the exact moment that regeneration happens, though some people do. You don't always know when it happens, though some people do know. Some people have a hard time identifying when the Lord calls them to be born again. For example, I look back on my life and I cannot pinpoint the exact day that I was born again. Can't do that. However, I can look at my fall semester, my freshman year of college, you're looking at about four months, and I can say that the Lord caused me to be born again in those four months. Something miraculous happened in my life. I was given spiritual life at some point, okay? People that grew up in a Christian home were taught the gospel at a young age and were trusting in Christ at a young age have a hard time identifying the moment. I think that's why some of them say, I was born into a Christian home. I've always been a Christian. I think sometimes that's what they say out of ignorance, but that's what they mean. Like, I've been taught the gospel my whole life. I've been trusting in Jesus as long as I can remember. 
I get that. So you can't pinpoint it. There's nothing wrong with not being able to pinpoint the exact time of the new birth. However, some people do know the exact moment of regeneration. So if y'all know John Wesley, this is what happened to him. A, A man is reading the preface to the epistle to Romans. That preface has been used to convert like a ton of people. It's weird. Like, can you ever imagine writing a preface of a book and then the Lord just used that all throughout redemptive history to save a ton of people? But that's what was happening with Luther's preface to his commentary on the epistle to the Romans. So at 8.45 p.m., John Wesley knows the exact hour. He knows the exact minute. He knows the exact day that this happened, okay? He said this, While he was describing the change which God works in the heart, regeneration, through faith in Christ, we just talked about that, this is what he says, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away all my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So John Wesley knew the exact day, hour, minute that he was saved, that he was born again from above. So some people don't know. Some people do know. All right. Secondly, secondly, though we do not always know the exact moment we are born again, there are evidences and signs that begin to manifest in our lives almost simultaneously to the new birth. Did y'all listen to that? There are certain evidences and there are certain signs that manifest themselves almost simultaneously as the moment you're born again. So let's look at these. The first sign, the first evidence that you've been born again that will begin to manifest itself almost simultaneously as the new birth is faith in Jesus Christ. Is faith in Jesus Christ. So when one is born again, regenerated, they almost simultaneously have faith in Christ Jesus for salvation. So since this is the first immediate evidence of the new birth, we need to know what faith is. What are we talking about? Some people think that faith is simply an assent to biblical truths. An assent to biblical truths. This understanding of faith is usually seen in areas where Christianity is embedded in the culture, like the Bible Belt. It's embedded in the culture, okay? It's embedded in your particular family. Your parents have been teaching you this stuff. Your siblings have been teaching this stuff. Or embedded in in a particular education that you receive. You receive some type of Christian education growing up. Maybe you went to a Christian school. Whatever it may be. So you affirm that Jesus Christ was a historical figure. That He died on the cross. That He rose from the dead. That the Bible is true and trustworthy. However, you are not personally interested in the Christian religion. You assent to it. Oh, but you're not personally interested. It is just something that has simply been a part of your whole life. It is like the faith of the Pharisees. They knew all the particular truths about the Messiah. They knew where he was to be born, who he was to descend from, etc. But they did not take a personal interest in these things. They presumed that the mere assent to these truths was good enough. But they didn't have a personal interest in Christ. This is the same case with the Jewish Christians that James was writing to, remember? They were assenting to theological truths. They believed God is one. They were monotheistic. They believed Jesus is God. However, their faith was not living and active. It was the same faith that the demons have, that same assent to truth that the demons have. They, they can acknowledge that. Yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. This is why James even said, even the demons believe in God and shudder. 
This is a misunderstanding of what faith is. Saving faith is not merely an assent to biblical truths. That doesn't, that's not what consists of saving faith. Also, some people think that faith is the persuasion in the mind, in your mind, that God will work a miracle, that He can do the miraculous. However, there are many Jews in Jesus' day that believed He would work a miracle. Do a miracle for us. Do something incredible. But they did not take a particular interest in Jesus. So you see this like overtly like spiritual people. Like they believe that God's going to do a miracle, that He's always working, all these other things. But that doesn't necessarily mean you have a personal interest in Jesus Christ. You may just have a personal in- interest in the miraculous, right? What God can do for you. So the persuasion of the mind that God exists and that He can do miracles is not biblical faith. The next one is a temporal faith. This is the hardest one. The first two are easy to distinguish. The last one is hard. A temporal faith. You see this all throughout the Gospels. There are people that seemingly receive the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the words of Christ, with joy. They receive it with joy at first, and then trials and persecution and prosperity and the cares of this world and all of this stuff starts trying that temporal faith, and it falls apart. So true saving faith is a faith that perseveres. This stuff falls apart. And so I even talked to somebody that acknowledged that they were an atheist, but they said, but just in case, when I was younger, I was baptized, you know? It's like, hold on. So so she had some type of religious experience when she was younger where she received the gospel with joy. But then trials came, hardships came, difficulties came, choked that faith out, and it proved to be a dead faith. That's not saving faith. That's not the faith that regeneration produces. Rather, regeneration produces a true saving faith in Christ. So this is saving faith in Christ. First, it involves knowledge of the gospel. If you want to have saving faith, you must know the gospel. So you must know truth. It's just just to assent to them is not good enough. You must know the truths about the gospel. Second, it involves an emotional aspect. There is an emotional aspect involved. Based on the knowledge of the gospel and the work of the Spirit inside of you, you no longer view Jesus with hatred or indifference or you're just apathetic to Him or anything like that. Rather, as you look at Jesus, you have an emotional love and affection for Him. There may be different heights. You look at John Wesley. I didn't write that when I was a freshman in college. When I came to faith in Christ, I wasn't still... My heart was strangely warmed. Or you see some people, they fall on their face crying their eyes out because of this. So I'm not saying they all have to be the same emotional thing that goes on in you, but there is an emotional aspect. You ought to love Jesus. When you see Jesus truly for the first time, the Spirit of God works in your heart to give you a new heart, you will adore Jesus as the Son of God. You will see Him as your Savior. Think about what Paul says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. You don't think there was some emotion behind that? Who loved me and gave Himself for me. There is an emotional aspect behind saving faith. You will love Christ as your Savior. That will happen. Third, it involves a matter of the will. Okay, You, based off the knowledge of, the, of Christ, the work of the Spirit in your heart, and the stirring of your affections and emotions, you will lay hold of Christ. How would you do anything else when you see Him for who He is? You will lay hold of Him. And you will want all the benefits that come with Christ. Oh, Lord, give me pardon of sins. Give me forgiveness of sins. Oh, Lord, 
Give me peace with God. Oh, reconcile me to the Father. Help me, be, help me to be an heir of all the promises of God. When you lay hold of Christ, you lay hold of all the benefits that come with Him. You will do that if you have true saving faith. So, that's what true saving faith is. When you're born again, that will manifest itself. So examine that. And the last one, the last evidence that I would mention is repentance. You will repent. When you are regenerated simultaneously to that work, you will repent of sin. And so repentance is a change of mind. You think about everything that the Spirit of God is doing in regeneration. You hear the gospel. The Spirit of God is working in you. He's cultivating affections for Christ in you. He's giving you a new heart. He's giving you a new spirit. All of these things that's going on in regeneration. When that happens, you will have a change of mind regarding the former life you were living. You will not think about sin as you did ten minutes before that. Something to indulge in. Something to enjoy for a season. Rather, you will see it as something that is killing you. And so you will have a change of mind regarding sin. You were formerly committed to self. We all were. I still wake up every morning committed to self, and i got to crucify it every single day. That's how we naturally are. But when you hear this gospel and the Spirit of God regenerates you, oh, you no longer see yourself as something to be worshipped. You see yourself as something dangerous. Man, my flesh and my passions are at war within me, and I need a Savior. So you'll have a change of mind. And this change, that's what repentance is, a change of mind that leads to a change of action. And so now you're like, Lord, use my life. Help me to be living for the glory of your name. Help me to live for Christ's sake. Help me to do this. I don't want to be doing all this stuff that I've been doing for a decade. It's leading me to death. I want to be living for the glory of your name. Give me your spirit so I can live for the glory of your name. So that's a true repentance that will manifest itself when you've been regenerated, when you've been born again from above. So have you been regenerated? And the way I say, so just quickly, the reason I say that I was converted, I was born again from above, regenerated my freshman year, fall semester, is not because I can pinpoint a specific moment in my life where I say, the Lord called me born again, my heart was strangely warmed, my affection started going out of the roof with King Jesus. That's not what happened. However, when I look back at that time, about a year later or a year and a half later, I was like... Man, when did I start having a true love for Jesus, a true affection for Jesus, a true desire for Jesus, a desire to love Him, an appreciation for His death on the cross, an appreciation for His resurrection from the dead, and an incredible hope in who Christ is? When did that happen? And when did I start like realizing that, man, this sin of sexual morality, of impurity, sensuality, pride, this stuff is killing me. I need, to, I need to do away with this and pursue Christ. When did that happen, Philip? And as I reflect on everything, I'm like, it happened sometime my freshman year, fall semester. I have no idea the date and time, but I know that that's when I had a genuine faith in Christ and I was repenting of sin. And those manifest themselves only in the person that has been born again. So I'm like, I was born again my freshman year of college. So have you been born again? Do you have a living faith that is being manifested? And do you have an ongoing, consistent life of repentance, a change of mind, and always pursuing a change of life for the glory of God? So let's pray real quick. 
Father in heaven, thank you for the doctrine of the new birth. Lord, we look at Israel all throughout the Old Testament. They didn't have a heart to obey, just like we didn't. We lived in opposition to you. We lived in hostility. It manifested itself differently. Not all of us were Hitlers, but Lord, we, we were indulging in things that you hated. And Lord, you promised that you would send your spirit, that you would give us a new heart. And you did that with the coming of Jesus and the new covenant. And Lord, we're thankful for that. And Father, we're thankful that at particular times in many of our lives, you did cause us to be born again. You gifted us with faith. And we believe in Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord and as our King and as our brother. And we love you. We have peace with you. So, Lord, we praise you for that. Now, Lord, please help us to listen to the preaching of, of the Word in faith in just a little bit. Strengthen our faith, Lord. We, we have saving faith, but strengthen it. We want it to be strong, able to withstand all the hostility of the world. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.